0: The Water Values Podcast, Session 20. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now, here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello, and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for joining me. And a big thank you to my son, Joey, who provided the intro voiceover today. He was really excited to help out with the Water Values podcast, and he did a great job. And he does the outro voiceover, too, so stay tuned for that, as well as the all-important disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Well, this past weekend, I climbed a 14er with a good friend of mine in the water industry. And when you're climbing, as you may guess, there's plenty of time to talk about a wide variety of things. He told me a number of things he's been working on, and I took away uh, some great ideas for future podcasts, so I'm really excited to develop those ideas into podcast episodes. Well, today's show features a friend of mine, Forbes Guthrie. Forbes is a terrific guy who knows a lot about cleaning up industrial and brackish water. He's a vice president at Stewart Environmental, and he can really break down the water treatment process in easily understandable ways. I wish we could have talked longer, but I think you'll really enjoy hearing what Forbes has to say. And in addition, Forbes is one of the first folks I talked to that I kind of bounced this idea of the Water Values podcast off of, and he he encouraged me to, uh, to give it a go, and so I... I'm very indebted to Forbes for uh, his support. But in any event, I think you're going to have a uh, learn a lot listening to Forbes. Well, with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelt, and here we go. Forbes, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. We greatly appreciate your time. Uh, if you could, could you please just start off by telling us a little about how you got into water and a little about your background?
1: Sure. Well, thanks for having me. You know, I, I, uh, I got into water in a roundabout way. Uh, we were some of the pioneers um, in the technical world of uh, Internet auctions. And so we, uh, we sold out uh, of those when the big boys moved into town. And um, I was looking for something else to do. I was invited by a company called InSitu that makes uh, water quality, level, and uh, instrumentation. And they invited me to become their technical product marketer. And so I was uh, in charge of of their direction for a good number of years. And I got to know water, um, albeit from the water level and the water quality space. And the company moved Fort Collins um, about, oh, eight to ten years ago. And uh, I was looking around at the engineering uh, talent in this area. I recognized from working in situ that water was uh, going to be a big deal. It was starting to be a little bit back then, but not so much as it is today. And I got the uh, idea that um, engineers are, are really good at solving problems, but perhaps they're not respectfully good marketers, and so my objective was to find one of the most promising upcoming engineers uh, in, in the water field. and. Um, work with him or her to move the, their processes forward. So I met up with a gentleman by the name of Dave Stewart, and the company is Stewart Environmental. And he and I teamed up, and we've been moving his uh, intellectual property forward, primarily in, in the space of ceramics um, to optimize water filtration. Okay. So that's really how I got into it in a nutshell.
0: All right, good deal. And uh, you said you teamed up with Dave Stewart. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that uh that partnership and and what your company's all about? Sure.
1: So Stewart Environmental is um, arguably the oldest environmental engineering company in Colorado, 65 years old. And it's a uh, family-run business. Uh, We've got three business units. The uh, first business unit is a lab, which is an anomaly for any, any company for that matter of any size. And, uh, It helps us to really dial in our processes, but we also keep most of the uh, large industrial dischargers out of the newspaper in the (laughs) the region. So that really helps. And then the second business unit is uh, our namesake. Um, So we run compliance and permitting out of that business unit, which goes hand-in-hand with the third business unit, which is uh, our process design engineering uh, for Industrial water, and we specialize in tough-to-treat waters. Um, as a as an example, we moved into produced water long before directional drilling even took off. And um, respectfully, we, we we actually did write the book. We've got a house bill and a senate bill we passed on the appropriation of water. Produced water is a new water right, and um, so. It's it's a it's a it's a strange place to be ahead of the curve. Sometimes you really don't want to be ahead of the curve until you get uh, you know, a lot of the uh, industrial institutional marketing tailwind behind you. But it's also a, a fun place. It's a, it's a nice place to be if you can get out there far enough where you don't have competition for a while.
0: Hmm. I uh, for those uh, listeners that don't know or may not know what produced water is, could you just give a little thumbnail as to what that is?
1: Sure. So uh, produced water is um, the water that comes out of oil or CBM, excuse me, <coughs> CBM wells as as the uh, water or the wells are dewatered. So as product is brought out, um, water is also entrained underground. And so that's really what we're dealing with uh, here all over the United States and, and uh, soon to be the world. as, as uh, directional drilling really takes off we have greater and greater quantities of, of this water and yeah, the, the issues certainly are there um, but they're very manageable from an engineering standpoint and the uh, big deal is though how do we take this resource and put it to highest and best use um, obviously highest and best use is um, generally not drinking water but it's um, it's it's perhaps industrial reuse or even reuse for fracking and um, that way it takes pressure off of using fresh water
0: okay and what what all goes into cleaning that water up for you know non-drinking water use
1: sure so the any water at the end of the day water is water there's only so many molecules that make up water but what's entrained in it um is is of of the consequence and so in this case um you you if you think of it as as a uh, upside down funnel um or a funnel for that matter, and you start removing the the larger particulates first, so the organics and then all of the paraffins and some of the hydrocarbons and so on, and keep filtering it. To better and better standards, you'll get to a point where industry can use it. And so at that point, the, either the, the uh, total dissolved solids or the salts will be need, need to be removed. Sometimes they don't. In many cases, in frack water, they, they don't need to be. But always the uh, scale formers, um, so they, the things that will um, gum up your, your inner works so of you, your piping and your head works, um, need to be removed. And so that's what we do. We sequentially. Uh, we we don't have a black box. Um, we we look warily upon companies that may have a black box, but we uh, we use uh, traditional standard engineering sequential processes to remove um, the particulates as well as the, the uh, dissolved and other materials in in the water um, step by
0: step. Okay. And how many typically? How many you know processes are in that? In each sequence that you're when you're cleaning this water up,
1: it depends. Um, it just depends on the influent quality of the water and the effluent requirements, and um, so there can be anywhere from two to uh, you know, up to five. And the again that the the balance comes on a cost benefit um, because there as as you start adding uh, additional processes. Of course, you've got the energy equation as well as uh, chemical manpower and, of course, the uh, capital expense.
0: Hmm. And so you're using ceramic filters to do all this. Is that, why is ceramic an important uh, composite for or compound for, uh, for this filtration?
1: Sure. So it's interesting in that, we started with ceramics back in the. Um, we were subsurface to most of everything that went on up in Central City in Black Hawk, Colorado, big mining area. And anytime you go subsurface, you get into the tailings, and um, we 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 started in that era, back when high density clarifiers were, were really uh, the rage, where you you add line lined precipitate metals and so on, and. Polymeric filters um, were also you know, sometimes used. And when we started looking at um, needing to go subsurface underneath a lot of the casinos that are up there and um, really scale down the size of our process, still do the same thing, we we started um, some work with, with Coors, Coors Tech, Coors Ceramics. And we, we found that essentially the same ceramics that you've you found in your, your drinking water filters can be used um, to, it, to filter metal particulate um, out of water. So we, in this case, in most cases, we'll work on the like submicron, um, 0.1 micron range, uh, which will r- remove most uh, suspended solids out of the water. Um, including uh, viruses and so on. Um, but with that, the big advantage over high-density clarification or polymerics is uh, actually threefold. Yeah, I can control a number of things um, on the site, and uh, the primary I want to control is, is energy. The second is chemicals, how many chemicals I have to, to use. Um, really equates to much sludge I have to dispose of as well, and then manpower. And so ceramics, because of um, they just because of how they stand up and how durable they are, as well as the substrate structure, uh, allow us to remove a lot of those uh, things that are, are capital intensive and do it on a very um, understandable fashion that's very repeatable and very durable, so ceramics uh, last up to 20 years, 30 years if you take care of them. Wow. Um, they're very hard to, uh, they're really just hard to, to hurt. Um, on the flip side though, a high density clarifier needs a uh, ton of chemicals, a ton of, ton of uh, real estate, and a bunch of manpower to, to operate. Um, certainly they were elegant uh, 40 years ago, but um, running the same Water through a, a ceramic takes uh, about 80% less real estate and uh, about two-thirds less power and, and uh, very little chemicals. So you know, that's really why ceramics shine in any type of industrial water. So so getting back to produced water where you've got, in some cases, uh, breakthrough. Um, anytime you've got industrial process, something is going to happen that uh you may not have um, expected, but you always uh, try and plan for. And in many cases, um, it's, it's a breakthrough. Something has uh, come down through a, through a, uh, a well battery that um, has burped up from, from one of the you know, well processes. And it comes at your system, and it'll come through. You need to clean the membrane. The membrane can become clogged. And if I was using a uh, polymeric, membrane i've only got two or three cleanings before the membrane becomes brittle and, and less effective and uh, whereas the ceramic i can clean it with just about anything um and that, the membrane is is uh good to go and you can continue to do that um, all day long which is uh yeah it's, it's a great reference to its durability again
0: hmm. what's the cleaning frequency for those ceramic filters
1: Again, it depends on the uh, influent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's um, in our case, we, we operate, uh, everything's automated. And so we, we dial the, uh, the skids in to identify what's called transmembrane pressures, um, which uh, basically is difference or delta in pressure from one side of the membrane to the other. And um, that's really dictated by the influent that's coming out. The membrane, so it's it's really the characteristics of what's hitting the membrane, as well as the quantity. Um, so we we clean the membrane um, continually. We uh, back pulse it with a uh, air hammer, which is uh, pretty unique, and it sloughs off the uh, material that's been filtered, hmm. and the uh, filtrate then weeps out through the other side, which is a, a neat way to do it.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, well. Let's get back into kind of some of the applications. Earlier you mentioned uh, doing some things in the Blackhawk area with respect to mines. Can you talk about mine water and just give us some basics on it and why it, that water needs to be treated when you're pulling it out and some of, the, some of that basic uh, information about mine water?
1: So mine water actually um, inherently is um – yeah, it's, it's okay water when it's underground. Um, but once you start getting into exposing that water to uh, air and, and other rock and, and new material, um, it becomes uh, heavily acidified. And that's what's known as uh, AMD or acid mine drainage. And as it becomes acidified, it starts uh, moving metals uh, into dissolution. And those metals are are generally regulated metals. Um, So you've heard of the arsenics and so on. And um, you can only have so much of that in watersheds. And so watersheds around the uh, United States and in many places of the world are are regulated on what's called total maximum daily load. And so basically how much uh, much regulated material can uh, be deposited um, in a certain area of the watershed, um, in a certain time period, without harming your downstream neighbor, and those regulations are are tightening. Um, they're incredibly tightening, which is good. Uh, again, it's we're uh, recognizing the value of water, and so if you can head off the problem at its source, and remove the uh, acid mine drainage, then you uh, you see solve a significant problem downstream. particularly you give And so the um, mine waters, uh, as as active mines go, um, active mines have uh, regulated discharge permits. So for the the most part, active mines in in the U.S. um, and mostly around the world are are highly regulated and um, they're great stewards. The uh, second part, though, is, is uh, old abandoned mines, and, and those are actually very problematic. There's a number of them in, in Colorado. I think the last count was about 16,000 back from the mining era, and so some are on the Superfund sites, um, some are just on the uh, cleanup track um, with our or their health department, and continually those uh, those mines and the adits are either getting closed off. Or if they're not able to be closed off the uh process for cleaning them up is um continually being upgraded to to meet in stream standards for uh, total maximum daily loads and um so that's kind of mining in a nutshell
0: okay I, and these mines are they typically coal mines or what what all types of mines will this mine water uh, percolate in?
1: So at any time you, you bring subsurface water up, um, bring it through fractured rock, um, something happens. Um, it may be okay, but usually it's not. And so anytime you've got any type of uh, you know, commodity mining going on, um, whether it's uh, minerals or energy or any any type of mining, um, you will have problems. And how you design the addits and the and the outflows um, really is key to mitigating those problems as well as uh, installing the, the proper filtration processes okay. if, they, if they can't be uh, closed
0: off concerning active mines does the does the type of extraction or the type of mineral you're pulling out um h- how does that impact the treatment process for that mine water
1: active mines um Really, have three points that uh, water is, is critical to touch. You know, the first issue is, is uh, their in, in intake water, how they get their water. Um, all mines uh, that, that are not net, net dischargers uh, need, need their process water. So to take water, whether it's from natural or industrial water, and process it to the, the quality of water that uh, you know, is, is on ionic balance to what um, is, is, is uh, appropriate to, to uh, move the material around and filter it and so on um, is is key. And so that's, a, that's more of an energy play um, and a little bit of a chemical play. There's not so much uh, burden in the water at that point. Second is their process water, so as they start moving water around their operations and, and washing and, and uh, cleaning the material, um, you, you start to uh, you know, get more suspended solids in the water. Um, that's another treatment point. And then the third is their actual mine discharge water, and that can contain a, uh, a number of things just depending on what's, what's being mined um, that, of course, needs to be... Cleaned before the uh, discharge, um, and it's all—it's all, it's all a, a very solid science. And really, the the key these days is uh, again to affect the uh, the energy balance as well as um, the chemical and manpower balance.
0: Got it. Okay, and um, l- let's let's switch off to say brackish water. It's been. A, uh-huh. Could you describe what number one what brackish water is? Uh, give some examples and then you know talk about uh some of the treatment processes for brackish water
1: sure so brackish water is actually arguably one of the next big frontiers so the uh available water that we have uh globally we're using um maybe less than a half percent and um the balance of that um is tied up in either glaciers and, and then the balance of that water, which is a uh, hugely significant percentage, is, uh, you know, it's all ocean water. And um, so as you move through the freshwater spectrum, and consider that um, only about 1% of the water globally is available, um, you start recognizing that there's a lot of other water. And so you start moving downstream, if no pun intended, to the other available waters, and again, it becomes a a cost issue of uh, treating. So there's there's a curve, uh, a cost-benefit curve of uh, how much do we want to pay to treat water and what's it worth on the other side. And so municipalities have, of course, traditionally gone after as fresh a water as they can and the TDS or total dissolved solids of those those types of water are in the yeah, maybe 300s or less. And brackish water though is the next um, the next really available water past uh, fresh, fresh water. And brackish water is generally water, um, the definition varies depending if you talk to the USGS or, or some professor at CSU, it varies uh, anywhere generally from about 500 TDS all the way up to 30,000. but somewhere in the range, generally of about 10,000 uh, TDS or below. And brackish water happens all around the globe. Um, it's generally entrained underground. So there's a lot of entrained underground lakes, if you would, that um, are slightly saline. Uh, the water is generally good, but it does uh, have uh, some dissolved particulate or dissolved material in it, um, which is, uh, in many cases, it's sulfates. And sulfates um, are, again, scale formers. Um, They uh, need to be removed, and so there's there's cost in removing the material as well as taking the dissolved solids, the other dissolved solids and salts to uh, a point where the water can be used. So traditionally, it's been ignored um, because of the cost. Uh, again, we'll go for the uh, lowest cost, cheapest water. And now, though, um, industry as well as energy are, are really looking to alternative sources of water because in most cases, the cities uh, that they're near have bought up a lot of the water rights. But we're also, as, as a society, starting to recognize that <coughs> there's uh, a much greater need to look at uh, other available waters and use the the impaired waters uh, for industrial uses, um, which is really great use. And so that's where we've been moving, whether it's the Central Valley of California, um, we're processing water underground uh, entrained water. But it's been um, actually made brackish somewhat because of agriculture. And we're we're processing, which I never thought I'd see the day, um, for agricultural use. And uh, we take what's called the silt density index down to a certain point. We take the uh, salts down to a certain point. And um, it's then blended and sold through the uh, the water system. We're doing the same thing for energy as well for uh, frack water. So we take uh, brackish water and we process it again, removing the scale formers. And um, we'll work with the midstream services companies, the haulers and disposers, to, uh sell that water for uh, directional drilling and so there's a couple of the examples of brackish water but certainly that's absolutely the next frontier that and uh, slightly impaired waters
0: okay hey can you talk a little about the, the you know technology commercialization in terms of process and things like that how you go about getting getting people to or water users to buy into using your you know the produce the, the brackish water that you're producing
1: Yeah, technology commercialization is actually in the engineering realm. Um, it's it's really somewhat of an ignored art. Um, those who ignore it uh, do it at their peril. But a technology commercialization generally goes uh, in our in our shop anyway. Um, we use what's called the Toyota motor development tollgate process. Same process as a Toyota. And Danaher and the big boys use to uh, commercialize something. And um, it's essentially a multi step process that starts with very wide assumptions. As you move through the product development stage, all of the various disciplines need to agree that we're making a product or a process that uh, meets the needs of the consumer that we can manufacture for a a price the market will bear, and we'll make a profit. And this is sustainable. So we have a triple bottom line going on as well. If it doesn't pass at any one step, uh, will we revisit our assumptions and our engineering? And if we can't make it happen, then we go on to the next. If we uh, recognize that early on in the process, we generally save us or our investors um, Potentially millions of dollars. Um, in the case of water, water is really a, a multi equation. So it's um, both engineering as well as macro and microeconomics are dealing with a commodity. Um, it's a very undervalued commodity. And most people don't recognize that. They know that water comes out of their tap when they turn it on, everything's good. And they don't recognize that uh, that there's a considerable amount of value and a considerable amount of touch that uh, goes into their water. And so how do we affect that? And what we do is we look for regions. Um, we use a multi-criteria decision analysis database. And we look at regions that are scarce of water. And we identify industries that value water highest. And that are looking to move in or either grow in those areas. And we then start looking at the supply chain. Where can we insert ourselves in the supply chain for that particular vertical? And so in many cases we'll, we'll team up with uh, midstream companies that, that deal in water and um, we will become the water manufacturer, whether it's on a, a design Basis or design, build, own, operate, and transfer. Uh, we also partner with some very, very big funders to uh, affect the design, build, own, operate, transfer components. So that's, um, again, in a nutshell, in two minutes, um, how we commercialize <laughs> the process in water.
0: <laughs> All right. Good deal. Well, Forbes, you've, wow. been, you've been fantastic today. I'd love to speak with you for, uh, for a good long time, but I think we're coming up against it here. Uh, if you could please, could you just tell us a little about where folks can more to, can go to find out more about you and Stewart Environmental?
1: Sure. Uh, quite simply, we've got a uh, website. It's uh, Stuart, stewartenv.com dot com. S T E W A R T E N V dot and um, list this on there. List what we do, and um, happy to talk with uh,
0: anyone in your audience about it. Great. Thanks again, Forbes. Great. You bet. You bet. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Well, I hope you got a lot out of that interview with Forbes Guthrie of Stewart Environmental. Forbes is just a terrific guy, and he knows how to clean up water in case you didn't gather that from the interview. So, here are my key takeaways. First, regardless of the type of water you're cleaning up, ceramic filters seem to be the best application. As Forbes indicated, they take a beating and keep filtering the water. They're relatively easy to clean and are very durable lasting as long as 30 years, if well taken care of. Second, the role ceramic filters will play will be increasing over time. As we've discussed many times on this podcast, people are looking for more water and are turning to previously unused sources like brackish water. The ceramic filters and those processes are the next frontier, as Forbes indicated, to clean up brackish and other impaired water and make it usable. Finally, another takeaway I had was the concept of understanding the technology you're using. Forbes talked about how he sequentially filters water through a series of ceramic filters. That lends itself to understanding and comprehending each step of the process and understanding why you're, you're going through a certain process or filtering the water in a certain way. And he indicated that he's wary of processes that involve a black box. And that's something we all need to understand and something that transcends the water industry. Whatever process we're undertaking, we need to comprehend the technology we're using and how it works rather than rely on that black box mentality where we don't understand how the process works. And simply put, using that black box is a recipe for disaster. Well, you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 20. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.